Uh, so, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Herrick, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Tom uh, could not be here today. He is up in Ventura. He misses you guys. He had a really hard time being gone, but he is, uh, he's ministering in another church that we are friends with called Anthem in Ventura this morning. They asked him to come in, and uh, we prayed about it as an elder team, and we really felt like it was God was calling him to go. So, he is up there for, uh, for the day. And so I am going to be preaching this morning, and I'm really excited to be back. Uh, I was gone last weekend. Was there some woos in the room? Yeah. All right. Uh, I need that. I'm a little low energy this morning. There was some craziness in our house, in our neighborhood last night. Uh, Fire trucks, ambulances in the middle of the night, cats and dogs fighting. It was crazy. Uh, So... A little bit low energy, but I'm really glad to be here with you guys. Uh, I was gone last weekend. I was in Puerto Rico. My, my grandma passed away, and so we, I went to a memorial there. And um, it was an interesting trip back home. I'm from there. That's where I was born. Pretty much all my family is still there. And uh, so in any kind of family, this ends up being a family reunion when someone passes like this. And so uh, for... That weekend, I spent a lot of time with family, and afterwards, we just spent hours kind of catching up. And there was a lot of family um, on my dad's side that's a lot older. I have a lot of younger family on my mom's side, but on my dad's side, and it was my dad's mom who passed away, there's a lot of older uh, relatives. Uh, Most of them do not have social media, and so they, when I saw them, they had a lot of questions. They just don't really know like what's going on, how's life in California, how are your kids, you have kids, all this stuff. So it's like extended family that I haven't seen in a long time. And so uh, eventually, one of them got around to asking me, so what do you do? What do you do? And um, this is a very simple answer to that question. I'm a pastor. Uh, That's what I do. I help people experience and enjoy Jesus uh, in Temecula. That's the answer. But It's never simple when I'm dealing with my family to answer that question. And the reality is I come from a family that is a part of a kind of different like cultural faith tradition in in Puerto Rico. That's what I grew up in. It's not necessarily the same thing that I believe now. Different values, different practices, different uh, church culture. And so me as a member of my family being raised in this tradition, when I say that I'm a Christian pastor, at best it's like peculiar to people. Kind of like um, if I was a city dweller, like I was raised in New York City, and then I moved to uh, Canada to raise chickens. People would be like, mm, why? Why'd you do that? <laughs> that's, so that's, like, that's, um, that's the best case scenario for me when I say I'm a pastor. That's like a good answer. Just like, why? Why would you do that? At worst, though, it can be like, oh, you're a cultist. And you're spreading a cult. Like, it could, be that, it could be that bad. So when it's my turn to answer the question, what do you do? Naturally, what I kind of feel is, is fear. I feel the weight of being different. I feel the weight of going against the traditions of my family. I feel a different, the, kind of the weight of, of rocking the boat by not going down the kind of traditional um, path that has, was set before me. I, feel, I like feel afraid of upsetting some family members, if I'm completely honest. And maybe most of all, like, I just feel like this natural, I think, I think it's natural, we all feel it, this fear of rejection, that as soon as I open my mouth, somebody's going to make, give me like one of these, are they going to look down, are they going to do one of these? And I actually saw that happen once uh, on this trip, when I answered the question, what do you do? And so it wasn't all, not everybody did that, but, um, but it was, I'm just telling you guys more about my experience internally, some of the fears and stuff that I experienced. 
And so I had time to reflect on this trip. I spent a lot of time in an airplane. It was a lot of travel to get there and back. And so it kind of dawned on me that in the moment when I was asked, what do you do? I really was tempted. It was like a kind of a small test for me. I was really tempted to like focus and care about what people think about me, what people say about me, or what people can do to me. And there was this temptation to have that control me. And I think to some degree or another, like we can all resonate with this. I think, for example, like uh, I think some of us have experienced rejection at the hands of a parent or of a spouse or of a sibling or of a close friend. And we've responded in a variety of ways. Some of us respond by throwing ourselves into our work. So I want to show my quality through my work. Others of us respond by building up walls. Nobody's going to hurt me again. Others of us respond by accumulating knowledge, accumulating wealth, accolades, degrees, you name it. We have all these different ways of coping with this fear of what people say or do or think about us. And others of us, I think we, we, we kind of grew up in environments that prized accomplishments or success. And so those are our functional life goals. And I'm not saying that that's what you would write on a doctrine quiz. If you were to, you would say, you would have the right answer. I'm here to glorify God and praise him forevermore, whatever the old confessions say. But at the end of the day, day in, day out, it's about achieving. Life is about achieving. It's kind of about proving yourself. Others of us, even like we grew up in environments where the values that we were shaped and raised in were frugality, thriftiness, and financial security. So even today, some of us are like in our 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond, we feel insecure about spending. We need to justify every purchase. It was on sale, you know, like that kind of thing. Because it feels like when you're about to make a purchase, all eyes are on you and you're being judged on what you spend, what you save, what you give, what you invest. And here's the problem with this. This is a big deal. Do you know why? Because that's slavery. It's slavery. Jesus died to set you free. Not so you can be a slave or that I could be a slave. So what people think about us, it's a huge deal. We're invited to freedom as servants of Jesus and his kingdom, not other people's opinions of us. Now, this slavery to what others think, the Bible has a very, I think, helpful term for it. It's called the fear of man. Maybe you've heard about this. Maybe you've heard this uh, preached on before. And the good news is the scriptures have so much to say about the fear of man. They talk about it over and over again. My perspective is that God seems completely committed to helping us conquer it. That's his heart for us. And so this morning, we're going to take a page out of the, the, the book of the best person I think that we could ever look at in terms of the fear of man, Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends, and yet he repeatedly struggled throughout his whole life with the fear of man. And before I do, I just want to say that if you're a visitor, I want to welcome you here this morning. And I really do want to invite you to like kind of view this morning as, as a personal invitation from Jesus to taste and see that he is good to taste and see that Jesus satisfies and offers you a chance not just to get to know him, but to enjoy him today. So if you have a Bible, turn over with me to Luke 22. Luke 22. Here's what we're going to do this morning. So I'm going to walk through Luke 22 with you, and I'm going to read certain parts of it that really help us to understand Peter's fear of man from his experiences in life. And then I'm going to share my version of a crash report uh, to kind of identify some of the main causes of his failure. If you've ever, if you've ever like, read about 
This is a very dark interest of mine, but airplane crashes. Uh, they do reports on every single one, and they learn from them. They'll do like, here's what happened. Here's the cause of an airplane crash. And, uh, and we're going to do the same thing with like Peter's crash. We're going to talk about what happened and see what we can learn from his, from, from his failure from Jesus' response. Sound good? Cool. Let's pray. You guys pray for me. Uh, this fear of man, I'm going to be talking about it. And the reality is it's something that I really struggle with. So I need your prayer to help me not give into the fear of man as I preach on the fear of man. Because that would be the definition of hypocrisy if there ever was one. Which the church needs no more of that. Uh, and I've contributed my fair share. So please pray for me and with me. Uh, Father, I, I want to ask for your help this morning. I want to thank you first and foremost that Jesus is good, that he is for us, that he is with us, that he's with me right now. Your word says that Jesus told his disciples, I'm with you to the end of the age as you go out and make disciples. And I think this morning, God, it's about discipleship. It's about us growing as your followers who know you, who enjoy you, who learn to live life with you and to imitate Jesus. And so I pray, Jesus, be with me, not just with me, but with us this morning. Open hearts and minds all around the room to receive what your word says. Help us to learn from Peter. Help us to really let what we're talking about just come into our own understanding, our own consciousness, our own view of ourselves. God, I pray that our self-awareness would go through the roof this morning as the Holy Spirit makes us aware of some, some things, but also that our awareness of Jesus' love and his transforming power would also go through the roof this morning. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in your me pray. Amen. All right, so Luke 22. Let me set the scene. If you're new, we are not in a series on Luke. We've been in a series on John, so I'm pausing the John series to talk about if you're a man today. So we, since we haven't been in Luke, I'm going to set the scene for you guys. So this is towards the end of the book of Luke. And for three years, Jesus has basically been doing the impossible. He's been proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God, which is just the redemptive rule and reign of God. And he's healed, he's healed people of physical sickness. He's announced the forgiveness of sins. And he's invited people to follow him and, and follow his loving way of life. So here's the thing, though. Jesus' life is about to take a twist right now. He's about to be betrayed and killed, even though he's done nothing but show the love of God and his faithfulness to people from day one. And the crazy part is, this was all part of God's plan. Jesus knew what was coming. He came into the world to die, to be the one final sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. And so in Luke 22, we see the final few scenes leading up to Jesus' sham trial and his crucifixion. So it's kind of the climax is here. So everything that's happening here is really, really important. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, this is kind of like you get to the, the mountain, it's like the very, very end, right before the ring goes into the volcano. So I've been watching a lot of Lord of the Rings, so you might hear me mention it uh, this morning. So <clears throat> here we go. So Jesus, prior to his arrest, uh, Jesus basically prepares his disciples for his death. That's what he does. He's preparing his disciples to die. Peter was a, a close friend of Jesus. If you know the story, he was a confidant. He was an apprentice of Jesus. They traveled together on ministry trips. They enjoyed deep relationship with one another. And Jesus was really grooming Peter to be a pillar of the community, the new community he was establishing on earth. And so in this scene that we're going to pick up on, here's what happens. Peter's allegiance to Jesus is tested. 
maybe more pointedly and severely than ever before. So let's pick up the story, Luke 22, verses 31 to, 30, 31 to 34. These are the words of Jesus speaking. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, look out. Simon Peter. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and that you is plural. He's referring to all the disciples who were present. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Verse 33, Lord, Peter told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, Jesus said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny me three times, that you deny three times that you even know me. Okay, what's happening here? One commentator noted this. I thought it was so helpful. Satan wishes to sift the disciples, and here's what that means, to find out their weak points, find out their weaknesses, to persuade them to sin, and then to encourage them to abandon their faith in their Savior, Jesus. Peter's response to this warning is epic. He says, Jesus, don't you worry, I got this. Satan ain't got nothing on me. That's basically what he says. And after that, Jesus takes his disciples to pray so that he can prepare for what's coming. And Jesus tells the disciples, pray that you don't fall into temptation. He's really clear with them. He's like, you need to stay up and pray. Hard things are coming. And then Jesus goes and pours out his heart to the Father and honestly says, if there's any other way, please, Dad, I don't want to die, but not my will, but yours be done. That's what's happening on Jesus' side. What's happening on the disciples' side? They're snoozing. They're asleep. Jesus is showing his humility and his humanity in breathtaking ways, and the disciples are taking a snooze. They're napping. These are the ones that Jesus told to stay up and pray so they wouldn't fall. They're out cold. Jesus wakes them up and says, guys, pray. Pray. Pray that you won't fall. But guess what? It was already too late. As Jesus is getting those words out of his mouth, in comes the mob to arrest him. They took Jesus away. Exit Jesus entered Peter's test. Peter's test had arrived. It was on his doorstep. Guess what? He wasn't ready. You guys ever have that dream where you're like, you're back in high school and it's like, oh no, this, this algebra tr- trig, I'm not ready. I don't, I, haven't, I don't even know what trig is. I'm, I haven't been in this environment for years. And then you're in your underwear, like that dream. That's basically like what happened to Peter. He wasn't ready. Let's go over to Luke 22, 54 to 62. It says this. It says this. They seized him, and that's a reference to Jesus, led him away. And brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. So this is Peter and a little crew of people. And Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him, Peter, sitting in the light, he looked closely at him and said, This man was with him too. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else said, saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, someone else just kept pressing, just kept insisting. This man was certainly with him since he's a Galilean. It's all over his accent. You can hear it. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turns and looks at Peter. 
I don't know if you can imagine that moment when you've just betrayed someone who's like a spouse, a best friend, like rolled into one. He locks eyes with Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Peter went outside and wept bitterly. This is a tragedy. I feel for Jesus, and I also feel for Peter. This is an utter disaster. I spent some time this week studying this scene out of Peter's life and wrote up kind of my accident report, which is pretty cold, I think, in light of how tender this is. Uh, But whatever. It's an accident report. We're going to call it that. I want to share with you what I believe are four causes of Peter's fall. I just like lists, so I had to come up with something so I can make a list. So number one, cause number one of Peter's fall. If you're taking notes, cause number one, overconfidence. Cause number one, overconfidence. So uh, Jesus gives Peter this word of warning, right? He tells Peter, Peter, you're going to fall. And Peter responded, Lord, I'll ride or die with you. Thanks for your concern, but I got this. And before we come down on Peter, let's think about what happened. Peter heard the word of the Lord, and what did he do? He dismissed it. He dismissed it. He didn't tremble at God's word like it says to do in Isaiah 66 too. Peter assumed he was safe from danger. Peter didn't heed God's warning, and so he became like a patient who thought he knew better than his doctor and dismissed the diagnosis and the treatment. With that in mind, is it any surprise that Peter fell? His pride like put him above needing God, yet without God's help, Peter was doomed to fail. I think this should, this should sober us, because I think we're capable of the same exact thing. If we're completely honest, if we have some self-awareness this morning, and I think that's a part of this morning, is to grow in self-awareness. Consider just three examples, quickly. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee from sexual immorality. To run from it like you would a burning building. Yet we get close and we push boundaries that we should run from, either physically, in our thought life, or on our screen. And then we smell like smoke. We're, we get close to being burned. We suffer burns. Think about this one Ephesians 4.32. We are told to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Yet how easy is it for us to speak ill of a brother or a sister instead of protecting or guarding their reputation? How easy is it for us just as people to nurse grudges and allow bitterness to grow in our hearts when we're literally told, put that away from you. That's not fitting for you. Last one, Luke 12, 15. Jesus himself tells us, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And yet, how often do we think we'll be satisfied once we make that purchase, or we get that job, or we have enough money in the bank, we make that investment, or we retire? The truth is, we are prone to the same pride as Peter, the same thing that showed up, which basically exalts us and our needs and minimizes God and God's word. The pride that we have in our hearts really does blind us to how close we are to playing with fire. I remember once I was driving to Tucson with some friends, Around sundown, if you've ever been down that, it's like a long, long, awful stretch of road uh, in, in Arizona. It smells terrible. It smells like cows. Um, and we're, we're driving, and the sun is going down in the west. The sun goes down in the west. And so my friend is driving, and she's heading east to Tucson. 
And the sun is like right where the rear view mirror is. So she can't see anything behind her. Nothing. It's just, she's totally blind. And totally unbeknownst to us, we were being chased by a cop who had their lights on and didn't turn on the, the siren for some reason. Don't ask me why. Also, the, the music was so loud in the car, I don't think we would have heard it. This was college. It's a weird time. So my friend was speeding, but we had no idea. The cops' lights disappeared in the sun. We were driving blind, and we were about to turn this into like a high-speed chase across the worst stretch of road known to man in Arizona. And in the same way, I feel like our pride really does blind us to the danger that we pursue our own glory and exaltation. We disregard God's word and we seek honor from people. We just don't see it. We really struggle to see it. So I want to ask you a question today. Is there an area of your life where you're no longer trembling at God's word? Is there an area of your life where you're no longer trembling at God's word? Is there an area of your life maybe where you're blinded by pride? Or might you be tempted to dismiss the great physician's diagnosis and prescription for your life? I'm going to get into it a little bit more later, but in my own life, my pride has caused me to often live as though the goal of life is to feel good about myself, whether that's through accomplishments, through recognition, through validation of people, through safety, through feeling safe, a lot of times in relationships. Here's the thing, pride, that pride, like it really does blind me to the real goal of life, which is to love God above all else and to love people. It keeps me focused on securing love and honor and safety for myself, which I then look to people to fill. That's the fear of man. That's the trap that Peter fell into. So I want to ask you the question, how might this be present in your life? So that's the first thing. The first cause is overconfidence fueled by pride. Okay, cause number two, Peter's fall. Prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. So Jesus told his disciples to pray and not to fall into temptation. So they slept. They fell asleep. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus had told them to stay up and pray. He had told them to do that before so they could withstand temptation. But they didn't really listen to him. I think those two things are connected. Peter was overconfident, and so he didn't pray. If you feel confident in yourself, you're not really going to ask for help. It's just natural. It's just a spiritual application of the principle that we see in everyday life. I think ultimately that left Peter in like a really precarious position. When I, when I was thinking about this, the, the image, I couldn't help thinking about this, but it was like, think like a soldier on a battlefield who underestimates his enemy and didn't call for air support, even though he has it. He's got fighter jets on call. The enemy hits him hard, and what is he? He's alone, and he's exposed. So what else could he expect to happen? He was easily overpowered by the enemy. And the scriptures compare the Christian life to a spiritual battle. Every single one of us, if we're followers of Jesus, we're called to put on our armor. We're called to learn how to wield the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, and to fight against sin, against Satan, and against the world that tempts us to abandon Jesus and to live for our own glory and honor rather than God's. So let me ask you, what's your reality do your prayers reflect that we're in a war and we're vulnerable 
to sin and to Satan? Is this kind of like the way that your prayers are formulated? Do your prayers reflect that our enemy's most effective tactic is to lull us to sleep through distraction and apathy? Do our prayers actually reflect that? Peter serves as a warning to us. To neglect prayer is to say, God, I've got it. Not with your words, but with your actions. And so when we pray, we're acknowledging what's actually true. We're overmatched in this battle. We're totally overmatched. We need the power of God to keep us from falling into sin. And the fear of man is essentially, is, is an especially tempting sin to us. I think the world and our flesh just prizes social media tweets, social media likes, tweets, retweets, fame, respect. That's what our world treasures. And Satan uses that against us. He uses that against us because know, he knows that's the air that we breathe, that's the system that we live in, that's the culture. And so let me ask you a question. Do you actively pray against these things? Are you mindful of this stuff when you're on social media, when you're posting stuff, when you're looking at other people's stuff? I was struck just yesterday by how badly I need to pray like this and how much I don't. Our son Josh had his first soccer game uh, at 10 o'clock yesterday morning. He's four. Four. And when I got there, I noticed like this heaviness in my heart. I quickly realized like, how's Josh going to play? How's that going to reflect on me as a dad? I haven't spent any time training him. (laughs) I don't know how to play soccer. I wanted him to do well, but not just for him, but for me. He's four. He's playing games in a league where they don't keep score. (laughs) But nevertheless, I realized in this heart, there's a fear of man that was rearing its ugly head. I needed God's help not to sin during youth soccer. Pathetic, yes. But we're all in the same boat together. If it's not youth soccer, it's something else, I promise you. So we need this sort of kind of prayerful vigilance because sin is a fire that needs to be put out early before it spreads and destroys the house. So I think the second cause of Peter's fall fall is prayerlessness. That's a tough word, prayerlessness. Okay, so we've got got prayerlessness. We have overconfidence. So cause number three, if you're following along on the accident report, is compromise. Compromise. So Peter, uh, he didn't tremble at Jesus' warnings. He didn't listen to Jesus' command to pray. So he was a soldier who refused his general's orders to put on the armor. He was a sick patient who didn't follow through on his doctor's treatment plan. So now his time of testing came. Bullets start to fly at Peter. The medical emergency came. He had a heart attack, whatever. He wasn't ready. He wasn't. So this fall, it shouldn't surprise anybody. He wasn't ready This big, strong fisherman, this brash man who said, I will go to your death, Jesus, ride or die. He crumbled in fear when a little girl asked him, weren't you with Jesus? Peter thought he was all about Jesus, but this test showed him there was way more going on underneath the surface than he ever dared imagine. He was way more concerned about what others thought than he realized. He was was more concerned about protecting his own reputation than he was about loving and serving his faithful Savior. And here's the thing. The, 
The Bible calls the fear of man a trap. Any Ghostbusters fans in the house? There's one. Me? Okay. So, um, if you've ever watched Ghostbusters, they have these proton packs that they use to kind of lock the ghosts in place, and then they'll throw out what? Trap, right? And so then when they're in place, they step on the trap. <sighs> goodbye, goodbye ghosts. That's how a trap works. You have, to, you have to bait someone in, get them in, and then you trap them. And the fear of man is a trap. Uh, and, and I learned a little bit more about traps this week. Our house was overrun by ants. And for all of the Lord of the Rings fans, they were like orcs that just kept coming, just storming the castle. You just take one out and they just keep coming. Great movies, guys. What did we do? So what did we do with the ants? So we set a trap for them that was like equal parts enticing. There was honey. It was like a little trap with some honey on it. And then we laced it with borax. Bye-bye, ants. Traps can be effective if the bait is enticing and the danger is masked, like honey laced with borax for ants. The fear of man is an effective trap because it has something in there that we are attracted to, that we want to be liked, to be loved, to be appreciated to be admired, to be respected. Who doesn't want that? If you raise your hand, you're lying. Sorry. If you, if, yeah. <laughs> or you're just really maturing. God bless you. So that might come through romance for some people. For others, it's going to come through career success. For others, it's going to be children. For others, it's going to be money. For others, it's going to be security and stability. There's a variety of things that Satan can put in that trap for us. But one thing he knows, we will be attracted to it, like ants to honey, laced with borax. It's clever, and it works. And when we finally fall into the trap, like Peter did, we choose something over Jesus. That's the compromise. Do you see that? We choose something over Jesus. Who here wants that? I don't want that. I don't think you want that. Nobody wants that. And yet, there's Peter in the trap, and all of us, I think, from the head nodding can understand how we ended up there and how we might end up there as well. We're tempted to choose something over Jesus. Peter chose safety and reputation over Jesus. So I want to ask a question. Because I care. I don't want to fall in the trap. You don't want to fall in the trap. We don't want to fall in the trap. What's in the trap for you? What tempts you today? What are you tempted to choose over Jesus what person, relationship, or thing are you tempted to choose over Jesus? Whatever that is, that's your functional center in life. That's your functional center in life, and it controls you. It controls you. You will bow down to it. It's a guarantee. I will bow down to it. We will bow down to it. In my own life, it's been people's approval. So at work, that means that no matter what work environment I'm in, I often want to produce high-quality work that will be appreciated. And when it's not appreciated, crushing. It's crushing. In relationships, it means I want to be loved. In social media, it means those likes are really validating. 
In leadership for me, it means that I'm often tempted to withhold things people need to hear because I think they won't like it, and by extension, they won't like me. As a parent, you already know, four-year-old soccer. There's also those moments that I feel really great when their kids listen in public and they obey. And those moments when they have a meltdown at Target or whatever and they fight, those are the worst. In school, it meant that like report card season and honor roll presentations were either the best day of the month or the worst, depending on how I did. Here's the common denominator for all that stuff. Like I put something on a pedestal and it wasn't Jesus. And here's the thing, it's selfish. It's all about me. It's dangerous. I want to ask a question. What are you tempted to choose over Jesus this morning? If you're honest with yourself. So the third cause of Peter's fall was compromise. And then we'll look real quick at the fourth and final aspect of Peter's fall, which is denial. Through overconfidence, prayerlessness, and compromise, Peter fell into Satan's trap. And now that he's in the trap, he denied that he knew Jesus three times. Denial is the end goal of the enemy. That's his checkmate. After that, though, for us, even though he promised, it's kind of like a little trap for the ants. It's like, ooh, honey, death. That's basically like what happens. Sorry, that was really abrupt. I don't know. That, that was kind of a serious moment that didn't go right. But seriously, like, Peter, what happened to Peter after? Shame, guilt, isolation, fear. That's what happened to Peter when he gave in. And, but that was what the enemy wanted. And I know this in my life all too well. By the way, I'm cheering a lot from my life because I just really felt like the Lord was like, cheer from your life. Because this has been like a personal struggle for me. I know this all too well. When I was 18 years old, I first heard about Jesus in a way that I could understand. I got a sense of Jesus' love and pursuit of me at college through some Christian friends. Jesus was calling me to follow him. and It was clear as day. I couldn't deny it. However, while I had a genuine desire, I think, to explore Jesus, I also had a genuine desire to be liked and loved by my group of friends. Following Jesus, really allowing him to change me and set me apart for his service, wasn't exactly going to help me win friends and influence on a college campus, like a secular college campus. It also wasn't going to help me pursue the romantic relationship that I was in because I had no idea how to follow Jesus, and even less of an idea of how to follow Jesus with another sinner who also struggled to follow Jesus. It was a mess. But here's how I decided I would handle it. I'd go to the occasional Bible study on campus. I'd attend a church service here or there. I'd try, to keep the girl, I'd try to keep the girlfriend, but not let any Christians close, close enough to scrutinize our relationship, which wasn't founded on Jesus, and I knew that. I was overconfident. I thought I could do it all. I functionally lived to be loved and safe in my relationships, but I tried to keep Jesus close so long as he didn't interfere with my goals. So I found myself in this very similar space as Peter, overconfident, prayerless, compromised. And then my day of testing came when I was a senior in college. It all came crumbling down. I was in a relationship with a girl and I really thought this was it. I thought I'd found the relationship that would guarantee me love and safety. She even said that she had an interest in following Jesus, so I was like, cool, maybe, we, maybe I can have my cake and eat it too. However, Jesus really was calling me to himself to live a new life, and I knew that. I couldn't deny that. And a big feature of that new life is that he was Lord of it all, and I knew that part. 
my college friends were honest enough, my Christian friends were honest enough in the, the moments, the brief moments I let them in to say, Jesus is Lord, bro. Not this girl, not whatever. It's going to go badly for you. And so I went to the girlfriend that I had at the time and I told her, like, let's follow Jesus together. This means a few things, including sexual purity, and we're going to grow as disciples in every area of life. This is going to be like a real thing. We're not just going to be playing church. We're going to do this. And then she said, no way, man. Where you want to go, I will not follow. You have to choose what you want. It's use me or this way of life you're describing. My hour of testing came. I had to make a choice. The safety and the love that I'd always wanted in the form of a relationship or Jesus. It was that stark. I'm not exaggerating. It was one or the other. It all came crumbling down. I tried to have everything for the longest time. And so the moment was there. My moment of testing came. My trial. What, did you, what do you think I did? Chose the girl? I did. I chose the girl. I did what Peter did. I fell into the trap through overconfidence that I could hold it all together, through prayerlessness, through constant compromise, and finally denial. It was as if Jesus was in the room and I looked at him and the pain in his eyes, I could see it. So the reason I think I'm preaching on Peter is because I am Peter in that sense. And if you're honest with yourself, I bet you can see a little bit of Peter in your own life too. Maybe it's not a romantic relationship like me, but maybe it's prioritizing career above all else. Maybe it's making your family an idol. Maybe it's living for money and the security that it brings. For me, falling into that trap and fall brought shame and guilt. I hid from Christians, literally hid. I was in the library once. I remember this. I'll never forget. In the library, I saw a Christian coming. I ran downstairs to the stacks and hid. It got to that point. I was so ashamed, like Peter. I want to ask a question. Where are you hiding today? Where are you hiding? What parts of your life do you not want others to know about? I believe that's exactly where Jesus wants to meet us today. I know I've talked a lot about Peter so far, and I'm going to be closing up here. But I think there's so much we can learn from him. But we're not done. We have to turn and talk about Jesus. How did Jesus shepherd Peter through this ordeal? This is really important because I think it reveals how Jesus wants to shepherd us through our trials, through our fear of man. So if you go back to Luke 22, 31 to 34, Jesus knows Peter will betray him before it happens. Make a note of that. Jesus knows it's going to happen. Jesus prays for and prepares Peter for his restoration before he even falls into the trap. Jesus' heart towards Peter is striking and beautiful and kind of freaky, if, we're, if we get it. Imagine what their friendship is like. They traveled the world together, the ancient world together, that part of the world. They did ministry together. They ate countless meals together. They cared about each other's families. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law once. They knew they were tight, as close as you could be, bound by friendship, by family, and a common mission that they knew would define human history. That's the relationship that they had. Now imagine you're in Jesus' shoes. You, you have a close friend who's about to pretend that he doesn't even know who you are so he can save his own skin 
while you're going to the cross, you're going to be, you're going to be skinned for his sake. Can you imagine? I'd be indignant. I'd be like, uh-uh, Peter. You're an idiot, Peter. That's what I would have said. And I would have, I would have taken a sick pleasure in seeing him fall. If I'm completely honest, it's evil and wicked, I know. But not Jesus. That's why I'm not the Savior. Praise God. What's on Jesus' heart? Making sure Peter knows that Jesus has his back. And that Peter has an important part to play in God's family when he gets up from his fall. He says, when you, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. What does that mean but take an active role in the church, in this young church, when you come back? What does that mean for you and me today? No matter what you have going on in your life, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how close you are to falling today, no matter what's functionally at the center of your life, Jesus is saying, come home. There's a place for you at the table. Come home. As you discover the riches of his love for you, he will transform you into someone who fears people, from someone who fears people to someone who loves people. That's what Peter discovered. After Jesus died, this blew my mind. Maybe you already know this. I did not know this, or I'd never connected these dots. After Jesus died and was raised from the dead, guess who the first person that, Jeter, that, Peter, that Jesus went to see was? I just gave away the answer. <laughs> Derek Jeter. <laughs> First person that Jesus goes to see is Peter by himself, privately. Get this. 1 Corinthians 15. If you've been in the church in a while, you've heard these words before. It's Paul's like grand declaration of what the gospel is, this good news about Jesus. I passed on to you what I also received, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then the twelve. Jesus had a private audience with Peter to restore him. Jesus went to Peter first. I can't imagine the tears of joy and sadness that Peter wept on Jesus' chest when he saw the risen Jesus from the dead in his house. It must have been like Peter died himself and was raised to life. Peter's sin was wiped clean. He was forgiven. It gets better. It gets better. Jesus did something else that was absolutely spectacular. After he was raised from the dead, he met his disciples on the beach for brekkie, for breakfast. And if you, I, I forgot, sorry, I did not get these verses to you guys, but I'll just summarize it real quick. If you've never read it before, it's amazing. Jesus is like, let's, let's eat. Let's have a, a meal together. And after they're done eating, he turns over to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And then Peter says, you know I love you. There they are. <laughs> Sean Madden for the win. <laughs> Happy birthday, Nicole Madden. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to mention that earlier. Uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Because Peter had said, even if everybody falls away, I won't fall away. So he was putting his, his brothers and sisters down. So he's like, do you really love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. What does Jesus say? Feed my lambs. Interesting. He told them. A second time, he asked Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to, to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. 
he told them. Verse 17, he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Peter was grieved that he had asked him for the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And I'll just stop there. Do you know what Jesus was doing? He was completely restoring him. 100%. Not only was he forgiven of his sins, but he was brought back into the ministry to take care of his sheep. No matter how bad you've blown it today, this is the offer. Forgiveness, restoration. That's the story of my life. I'll go ahead and call the band up. You guys are ready. Going a little long, apologize. Sorry, not sorry. Kind of sorry. Um, there is a reason why I'm here today. It's because I am Peter, in a sense. Jesus forgave me of my denial. And he kept pursuing me. And he forgave me. And even though the risen Jesus didn't show up in my bedroom and talk to me, it really felt like I might as well have. Because after I fell and I spent a long time away from him, like, Jesus never stopped pursuing me. And I had this moment of clarity when I was in my room, I think I was 23, and I saw the cross for the first time, and it, I, it hit me like, he died for me. That was to forgive my sin. And there was this peace where I knew I was forgiven. And then I went back, I was still with the same girl, and I was like, let's follow Jesus together. Same thing, same shtick. She was like, nope, we will not follow Jesus. I'm not going to follow Jesus with you that way. And so Jesus gave me another try at it. I had a choice once again. And Peter, who was restored, he went back into the ministry. And Jesus, I'm not kidding you, he gave me the power to say no more and to walk out of there. And here I am now. Now he's made me a shepherd of the sheep, an under-shepherd. Jesus is the, the great shepherd, but he's brought me into his ministry. Take care of my sheep, tend to my lambs. That's the only reason why I'm here today. I'm not here today because I'm like an amazing public speaker or whatever. Like I am here today because Jesus called me to tend his lambs, his sheep. That's what he does. So if you've fallen, I want you to know that there's forgiveness for you. If you could see yourself falling, there's forgiveness for you. And there's restoration that Jesus offers. And here's the good news. This isn't just a one-time thing. Even after Peter was restored, guess what? He fell again. If you've ever read Galatians, Peter fell hard. He compromised on the gospel. So, so badly that Paul had to challenge him to his face. The apostle Paul had to challenge Peter and say, you've moved away from the gospel. But guess what? Peter was restored. And Peter died a martyr. He actually died. The one who was like, I'll go to you, I'll go with you, Jesus, to your death. He did. He did. But it took a lifetime to, to build up that kind of character. So if you guys would stand with me, I just want to ask a question like, what is God stirring up in your heart today? Like, do you see an area of your life where you maybe have overconfidence? where you're playing with fire in terms of sin, where you've put people on a pedestal they shouldn't be on? Is there like a prayerlessness right now in your life where you feel unsettled or unsure and just kind of apathetic and comfortable? I want you to know that humility and prayer are gonna always be a part of this thing as we move forward together. That's something you can grow in community. 
This is a safe place where you can share, hey, I'm tempted right now. I'm tempted in my job. I'm tempted in my marriage. That's what gospel community exists for, by the way. It's not a Bible study, although we study the Bible together. It's not just a small group meeting. Like We want to actually share at that level. I'm tempted to sin and fall away from Jesus. Or I'm scared because I don't know what to do about my marriage or my this or that or whatever. It's about good. That's where you can grow in a safe way. I've talked a lot. I went long. I'm going to pray real quick, and then we're going to sing to Jesus, and then I'll, I'll come back up here and close this out. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Thank you that you love us wholeheartedly and that you proved it on the cross. I pray that you would help us this morning to respond with gratitude and with joy at your offer of forgiveness and restoration. God, I thank you for the people that haven't fallen yet. But this morning, it was a wake-up call. Maybe they were slumbering, sleeping, and this was like a jolt, a call to gratefully and, and, and humbly pursue a life of prayer and dependence. Maybe for some, there's like a clear need, an area of their life where it's just like, I need to, I need to bring this under the lordship of Jesus. I've been trying to do this on my own, and I can't anymore. And I, t- I know my time of testing is coming. God, would you help us to see what our next step is, Father? Would you have grace for us just like you had for Peter? God, I pray that people would walk out of this room changed today by your goodness, your mercy, and the depths of your love for them. And I pray that they would want to do something about it. We love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.